Today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. As we've been doing uh, week after week, we're also mixing the Proverbs in the Old Testament, uh, a brief proverb, and we go, we're going in succession. And then we go back to the New Testament, which we have the main uh, body of our study. But today's proverb is Proverb of the Day 3, verses 11 through 12. Two verses. It says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father the son in whom he delights. It's human nature to resist these things. Chastening, correction, discipline. Who enjoys being on the receiving end of that? (laughs) Raise your hand. Do you like it when somebody comes to you and says, Hey, brother, you're in sin. Or, hey, sister, that's not very Christian-like. You know, it's not an enjoyable thing. However, Proverbs 9 says that it's the wise man and the wise woman who receives that correction and becomes better as a result of it. It's the fool who scoffs at that correction. And this is so cool because when we do the proverb of the day, the majority of the time it lines up with the New Testament scripture that we're teaching in. As we go through Revelation chapter 2, we're going to see that the Lord meets out discipline to save these seven churches really from themselves. And we're also going to talk about Judges chapter 10 briefly, which we covered two Wednesdays ago in our Wednesday night Bible study, and tie it all in. So the last time we saw an introduction to Revelation and we built the foundation of who Jesus really is, and in the next few weeks we're going to see these messages to the seven Asian churches and how every church over the years displays one or more of these characteristics what church is supposed to be, and what church is not supposed to be. So Revelation 2, starting with verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil and that you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. So we have an introduction to the first church here that's listed. This is the church of Ephesus. This represents the apostolic age, which is from roughly A.D. 33 to A.D. 100, starting with the death of Christ, the resurrection, and then the ascension, all the way up into A.D. 100, which was about the time that the last of the apostles died off, the apostolic age. And each of the seven churches represents three things, a church geographically, a church age, and a church type. And let me explain that. Geographically, the church of Ephesus was a literal church in Ephesus that Jesus was speaking to. Okay? These are the problems you have to deal with, church of Ephesus. A church age, which we talked about, the apostolic age. Through history and other means, we can look at what Jesus is saying to these churches and have an idea through history what type of church and what era is affected by his rebuke and commendation. And a church type. That means really any church today can fit into some of these types. When we look at the Church of Philadelphia, contrary to popular belief, the Church of Philadelphia is not in Pennsylvania. It's in western Turkey. But each church type, some were good, some were not so good. Some had more good things that Jesus said about them, and some had more rebuke. And we'll see what each church today 
how they fit into one of these church types. Jesus, it says, walks in the midst of the lampstands or the churches and holds the seven angels or the seven stars. And the Greek word is angeloi, which can mean, it's mostly translated angels, but really what it literally means is messengers to the church leader, to the church pastor. Jesus is speaking to these people and saying how they have to help to clean up what's going on in the church and what good things they're doing to hold fast in the good things they're doing. And this is important to understand that Jesus has ultimate sovereignty over any church, not the pastor. I have limited control here. I can tell you that as long as I'm the pastor, we're going to use the Bible. That I have control over. We can look for a building. I have some control over that. But for the most part, Jesus has ultimate sovereignty over this church and any other church. When you come to church, you're not putting your spiritual health in my hands. You're putting your spiritual health in the Lord's hands. And this is kind of interesting that you see the difference between sovereignty and free will and how they're, they're reconciled together. In the one sense, Jesus is ultimately in control. But in the other sense, Jesus speaks to the leaders and says, this I have against you, this you need to fix. So the free will and the choice of the leadership, Jesus rebukes at times to help them to make the proper changes. You see how these two work together. So first we have the good report. I know your works, your labor, your patience. You can't tolerate evil. You've tested those apostles and found them to be liars. They're false apostles. I know your perseverance. They were diligent. The Ephesians had a never-give-up spirit. These were good things, and Jesus commended them for it. The testing of the apostles and the inability to tolerate evil. This is discernment. And discernment is important and also commanded by Paul, Peter, Jude, and John, and anyone else who wrote letter to other believers. This is a picture of being able to cast out wolves, deceivers, and liars from the church because they come in. And that's one of the shepherd's jobs. Wolves often wear sheep's clothing, and sometimes the other sheep can't recognize them. It's only a hireling or somebody who's a false shepherd doesn't cast out the wolf to maybe avoid confrontation or to artificially maintain their size or is a wolf himself. But a true shepherd will bear the scars of casting out wolves. And it was much easier to ignore the evil in the Ephesian church, but they decided to go in there and to cast out these people who didn't belong. In addition, we know that the Ephesian church had great input from Timothy, from Paul, and from others. John, and we'll get back to that. Now for the bad news, verse 4. Nevertheless, Jesus says, I have this against you, that you left your first love. Ouch. He's telling the church, you did all these good things, but you left your first love. Shouldn't our first love be Jesus? Isn't that the reason why we do what we do as Christians or as a church? Shouldn't it be that we are the branches and Jesus is the vine, he says in John 15. And the reason why a branch bears good fruit is because that branch is in harmony with the vine and is, is, is receiving nutrients from that, that vine and hydration, right? Isn't that the way it's supposed to be? Jesus is the reason why we do what we do as Christians. He's the foundation. But the Ephesians left their honeymoon with their Lord and took him for granted. What would happen in a marriage if a spouse takes another spouse for granted? Well, that relationship starts to break down, doesn't it? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul, which, we, which I always reference when uh, we perform a marriage ceremony, is that the, uh, 1 Corinthians 13 speaks about love. 
And the Apostle Paul says, listen, I could speak with the tongues of angels and I could do miracles and I could give my body to be burned for the Lord. But if I don't have love, I am nothing. Without love is the glue that holds everything together. So that's important. And the question is, love for who? Well, Matthew 22, Jesus makes it clear, drawing from two different books in the, in the, uh, in the Torah, in the law. One is love for God first. And then out of our love for God comes love for our neighbor. If our love for God wanes, there's no love left for anybody else, right? Many have an outward appearance of serving God, but inside the love for him has grown cold. You ever find yourself going through the motions in anything and your heart isn't with it? And you notice that. My heart's not in it, but I'm just doing it as a duty. And we just hope, as we see in the next verse that we read, maybe this is a picture of a Christian who does his or her duty, but they can tell or you can tell that maybe they don't care. Maybe it's a picture of a go, go, go spirit, but the heart isn't right. Or maybe they can fool many on the outside, but not the Lord. Remember we, I talked about how you kind of got to get every book in this series, and even if you miss it, to pick it up on the website. Because in the first chapter, we see that the descriptor of Jesus, one of the things about him is that his eyes are as a flame of fire. It's a picture of discernment. It's a picture of, of he can see through anything, right? He knows all things. So God can't be fooled. Jesus can't be fooled. We must never let our works, which are good, outrun or run ahead of our love for Christ and others, which can become bad. Verse 5, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Here's the hope for someone in that condition. Follow Christ's instructions. See, Jesus never gives us the bad news. The Bible never gives us the bad news without also giving us a picture of hope. That's what God is. He's all about hope. So the bad news is given But here's the good news. Here's a way to recapture that. A few things. Number one, three steps to this. Remember where you have fallen. I like this. In your mind, search and find where things went wrong. Where did things go awry? Where did things go south in my walk with the Lord? Remember, take a mental note so you don't repeat that same mistake. You know, two years ago, I was really on fire for the Lord, and my heart was with him, and man, something happened and it just doesn't feel the same. Jesus says, go back in time, on a timeline, and find out what was it that threw you off the track and go back to that part and, and, and do the right thing, do it over again, right? So make a mental note in your mind. The second thing is repent. True repentance is hard to find, even in the church. If you want to know what repentance looks like, go back two Wednesdays ago, to Judges chapter 10, it was a great a picture of the children of Israel and God and how they kept messing up and a picture of a succession of events that took place where they finally repented and then God restored them again. Now I'm going to break the second part down into three parts. So repent. There's three steps here. Again, according to the study in Judges chapter 10, three steps. The first one is confession. The children of Israel cried out to the Lord and they said, Lord, we have sinned. And they named their sin. I've heard this from preachers. When you repent, when you're quiet and you're alone and you're speaking to your God and you repent and say you're sorry for the things you've done, name your sins. I didn't quite understand that until I really meditate on it. That's really good and it's also biblical. You know why? We should bring it up. Lord, just us and him. 
And then he'll forgive us. But you know what? Sins are ugly. And these are a lot of the reasons why Jesus went to the cross. Because of those individual sins that we commit. So the children of Israel confessed their sins to the Lord. He didn't deliver them yet in Judges chapter 10. The second part was accept the consequences. Again, you don't see this a lot in the world. You just don't. True repentance, biblical repentance. The second part is accept the consequences. The children of Israel said this to the Lord. They said, Lord, we want you to deliver us. However, whatever your will is. That's real repentance. The second part. Lord, this is what we would prefer, but it is what it is, Lord. We accept whatever you mete out to us. Children of Israel still weren't delivered. Third part in Judges chapter 10. Bear fruits of repentance, like John the Baptist said, or action. Actions speak louder than words, not just lip service. The third step that the children of Israel did was they took all their idols, they scooped them up, all their false gods, all the bad things that they were doing, and they destroyed them. And then, the God, then God couldn't deal, he couldn't watch his children suffer anymore, and he relented and gave them another judge, which we're going to go through two Wednesdays, three Wednesdays from now in Judges chapter 11. So confession, accept the consequences, and bear fruits. Action speaks louder than words, not just lip service. Okay, so remember where you have fallen, Jesus says, two, repent, and three, do the first works. This is the restoration of original fellowship. Restoration is always the goal to any disciplinary process, and you see that in the Bible. The Bible talks about church discipline, but the Bible also talks about ultimately restoration is the goal. Now, some people resist the discipline and they resist the restoration, but that's God's goal. So here we're kind of like pruning off the bad branches, and Jesus speaks about that. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. The branches that don't bear fruit, they're, they're no good. They're just good to be cast off and thrown into the fire and destroyed. So in our lives, what we want to do is we want to go back to the place where things went wrong. In our own hearts, we need to prune off the bad branches, because you know in horticulture that good things grow when the bad uh, branches withered are pruned off. Okay, you can follow that. And my wife does a lot of gardening, so I can learn a lot of things from her. <laughs> Jesus says, if you don't repent, I will remove your lampstand. What does that mean? I'll just go through a brief analogy that I went through last Sunday. Again, the moon. The moon is ugly. It's got craters in it. It's kind of gray. But on a beautiful night, when the moon is reflecting the sunlight, depending on how the, the planets are aligned. If it's a full moon and you see the beautiful sunlight uh, reflected off of it, it's a beautiful, it casts a beautiful hue on the evening, and you don't really need a light to walk around because you've got that subtle moonlight, right? But in and of itself, the moon is ugly. <laughs> but when it reflects the sun's light, it's glorious. And as Christians, as churches, we shine the brightest and we look so beautiful when we reflect the light of Christ. And we are. By nature, we're sinners. You know, our hearts are ugly. But when we're reflecting Jesus as a church, as an individual Christian, we reflect that beautiful light of Christ. There are many churches today that have strayed so far from God's word that there's no more light. The lampstand has been removed, as Jesus said. It's gone. And they're only relegated to being a glorified social club. And that's not the purpose of a church. Don't be impressed by a church with all the accoutrements of a successful ministry because the Lord can see through it. There's plenty of churches that give the impression of success, these huge churches out in the Midwest, and the pastor may never use the Bible. It's a glorified social club if God's word isn't being used. Verse 6, Jesus says, But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
the Nicolaitans, not Nickelodeon, the Nicolaitans. <laughs> We're going to come to them next Sunday. Uh, the other two churches speak about the Nicolaitans. Jesus speaks about them in a little more detail, so we'll cover that next Sunday. But suffice it to say, this is another positive point. In the, you know, good points, bad points. He, they hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans as I do. Boom, they get another point for that. What I find interesting about this is, and I don't know if this is true, I've heard this, that if one of the famous salesmen of all time um, uses this approach that Jesus used, he gives the good points and he, and he builds them up and then he tells them, but this I have against you. This is where you've fallen short. Now, in any disciplinary process, that's a good thing to do. It, it's a good thing to keep in mind, to build the person up and then show them where they've fallen short. Because if you meet with somebody for the first time and you immediately slam them, even if it's deserved, they're going to tune you out. And I can hear anything you say. So Jesus' method, it's amazing how the word of God is so applicable to our lives, right? Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Jesus said, he who has an ear, let him hear. Are you listening? Are you really listening? Are you really paying attention? Our ears, words come in. Even when we sleep, we hear sounds, don't we? But what's really sticking inside of our melon and what's just kind of going in, rattling around, and then going out the other side, if that could happen? After service, if I um, gave you a pop quiz and said, hey, so what would you like about the service today? Maybe some might look at me like a deer in headlights. And that's happened to me before. And listen, I won't do that. My pastor used to do that to me once in a while, and sometimes I would look at him like a deer in headlights, and I have to really think about what he said. But are we listening, or are we listening? Are we really taking it in and meditating on what God's Word says to us? Jesus says, To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life. From the par- in the paradise of God. Now, this is a picture of the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were banned when they broke fellowship with God. They had the tree of life, but God said, listen, you're not eating from that tree anymore. You've rebelled against me. You've sinned. Leave the garden. And there was a cherubim with a a sword flaming each way, and he wouldn't let them back in the garden. So Jesus is saying here that, you know, come back and you can eat of that tree of life. What I notice here is repent and go back to your first works. And the tree of life is a type of going back to the way it was in the beginning. Jesus said to Ephesus, I'm in control, not you. However, you must fix the problem, and then I will give you unfettered access to the tree of life. Again, a picture of restored fellowship and restoration. That was the reason for the cross in the first place, wasn't it? Why did Jesus go to the cross? Because there was a huge chasm, a huge impasse between a holy and righteous, perfect God and sinful man. We all fall into that category. So God gave his only son to die on the cross to receive all the sins of the world on him. How it happened is just unfathomable, but it did. Yours, my sin, even the sins that we haven't committed yet, he took and bore on that cross and shed his blood for the remissions of our sins. So the cross is the ultimate picture of restoration. But again, it's something that we have to, you know, God's already put out the olive branch. We have to lay hold of it and take that from him. And this may be a timely message for some here. Coming back to the love of Christ and restored fellowship is what God desires. I don't know what's going on in your lives. I can't tell. And I'm not going to judge anyone's walk here, sitting here, or anywhere. The Bible says not to judge. I can't tell somebody's heart. But 
there may be some here today or even listening on the Internet or the CD who this is a timely message for. And you're saying, man, that really speaks to me. You mean God is calling me home? Yes. If you're a prodigal, God loves you. Jesus loves you. It's the whole story about the prodigal son. The father, who was a picture of God, when the prodigal son came home, you know, he put out all the stops. Get the fatted calf. Get everybody together. Let's celebrate. Hey, but this guy did some pretty rotten things. Yeah, but he came back to the fold. He repented. He came back to the father. And father threw a big party. Spare no expense. And that's the way the Lord is to us, individually. And that's something that we have to take hold of. God loves us individually. So what does an Ephesian church look like today? And this is good because I'm going to go back and forth 3,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago to today, and I'm going to go back and forth and discuss the different churches and how it affects us today in our contemporary society. Well, an Ephesian church today works. They do a lot of works. They have a good appearance. Maybe they have a lot of ministries. Maybe they're active in the community. Maybe they look impeccable from the outside. Both Christians and, and non-Christians alike look at that church and they are impressed by that church. We talked about input from uh, some heavy hitters, Paul, John, uh, Timothy, to the Ephesian church. Maybe the Ephesian church today started out good and has all the guest speakers, has all the best guest worship, missionaries, Christian celebrities. But if they're not using the Bible and they left their first love, Jesus has a problem with it. doesn't matter how good it looks. Someday, and I know this may seem, sound odd for me to say because we are a Calvary Chapel, someday the Calvary Chapel movement may take on characteristics of the Ephesian church. No one's immune from it. I've got to tell you, I'm not partisan. I'm not loyal to anyone but Jesus Christ. If Calvary Chapel goes south, I'm not going to be, we'll change our name, we'll be somebody else. It doesn't matter. It's not about denominationalism. It doesn't matter about who we are. Well, we're better than them, and Calvary's the end all be all nonsense. Our partisanship needs to be to Jesus Christ and him alone. That's our foundation, and that's where I'm going to go. So my question is, have we left our first love? Have we forgotten who it is we serve? And as a result of that, have we forgotten our neighbors and to love our neighbors as ourselves? Is there somebody you know who's very sick, who needs to be visited maybe in the hospital? Maybe somebody who needs a meal. Maybe there's somebody that you know who needs encouragement and all you have to do is pick up the phone and spend 10 minutes and encourage that person and pray with them. That's loving your neighbor. It's only because only if we have the love of Jesus will that love flow through us and flow onto other people. Verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? Second church here. Smyrna actually means bitter and it's related to the word myrrh. Now, this is the martyred or persecuted church age, which is basically from A.D. 100 now to A.D. 300. Myrrh is multifaceted. Myrrh basically comes from a tree that has a resinous substance that, depending on how you process that substance, you can get an embalming agent out of it. You can get a sedative out of it. Sedative out of it. It's multifaceted in its use. Now, the taste is bitter, but when it's crushed, a fragrant oil comes out, and that's why it's used in embalming. Not to be graphic, but today, you know, they take the blood out and they pump you filled with formaldehyde and they, you know, make you smell real nice. But in those days, you would rot in the hot sun and you had to have put something on you so that it didn't, like, you know, make people sick. So that's why it was used for embalming. Now talk about the symbolism here. Jesus was crushed and his subsequent martyrs were crushed. And the more they were persecuted, the more the fragrance of Christ came out. 
And if you look at Fox's Book of Martyrs or a lot of these stories about Christians, when they were persecuted and they were crushed, maybe being tortured, maybe they were on their deathbeds at the hands of their persecutors, uh, they would pray for their persecutors. They would quote scripture. They would sing. While so many reports of Christians being burned at the stake and singing as they were being engulfed in the flames. So this is amazing. The Smyrna church, the church of myrrh, the more they were crushed and squeezed, the oil would come out and it would smell good and it was the fragrance of Christ, like Paul says in Corinthians. So, the question is, um, you know, I lost my place, as you can tell. (laughs) Jesus says, I know the negative things that you've endured and it may be assumed that you are losers. Again, I'm paraphrasing into the contemporary language, but you're not. How many people, raise your hand, have heard of the Hamong people? The Hamong, anybody? A few, very good. How many people have heard of the Dalits? The Dalit people? A few, okay. What about the Sudanese? Hopefully more, right? Okay. Well, what do they have in common? They're Smyrnans. That's what they are. That's who Jesus is speaking about. Let me tell you about the Hamong people. The Hamong are village people, not like the group. They're tribal <laughs> village people, right? And they mostly indigenous to Vietnam, Laos, and southern China. And those around them, it's, it's institutionalized racism. They look at them like they're lower class people. And a lot of these Hmong have become Christians, and they're persecuted. Their churches are very meager. Their homes are very meager. Uh, they live off the land, and they're being persecuted for their faith. The Dalits, if you are familiar with the Indian caste system, the, the Dalits are all the way on the bottom. I believe it's the Brahmins who are on the top. Basically, if there's a puddle and I'm a Brahmin, I take a Dalit, a human being, and put him on the puddle and step over him because I don't want to get my feet dirty or wet. That's how they're treated in India. A lot of the Dalits, by the hundreds of thousands, are becoming Christians. They're persecuted for their faith. Not only are they low class, according to the caste system, but now they've become Christian, and they've turned on their national identity, their faith. The Sudanese in Africa, well, we all know the Sudanese. Most of you have raised your hand. They're persecuted also by uh, the Khartoum government. They're Smyrnans. They're Smyrnans. Jesus said, I know your works, your tribulation, and your poverty. Go back 2,000 years. Think about the the people groups that I spoke of. Now let's go back 2,000 years. The Smyrnans were excluded from the guilds, the trade guilds, which they they would need to make their money, right? Uh, So, of course, that would make them poor. And the reason why they were excluded because they were being persecuted because of their Christian faith. And the Jews and Romans in that area relegated them to what we know as ghettos today. That's how they were treated. But Jesus said, you are rich. Now... At first glance, you might say, Joe, after the way you explained it, how could Jesus say you are rich? A few scriptures. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, don't store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasures are, your heart will be also. How appropriate to what's going on in the world. Stock market, right? Wall Street's nervous. We're up, we're down in the Dow, okay? Um, The government has to bail out all these prominent uh, companies. And I saw a thing over the weekend, and the the headline was, America is broke. We're like several hundred trillion dollars in debt. Things are pretty bad in this country. But you know what? If you stored up, and listen, I'm not telling you not to save. I'm not telling you not to have 401ks. I'm not going there, all right? 
But what I am saying is that the treasures that you store up in heaven and what Jesus is saying is, this is so appropriate for today, the treasures that you store up in heaven, the stock market can't touch. Government bailouts can't touch. You know, other, the Chinese, you know, growing in prominence and, and you know, maybe our AAA rating is going to go down uh, for the government. It, can't, it doesn't affect it. The heavenly treasures that we store up will not be affected at all by what happens on this earth. So we may have some T-bonds, but certainly better to have J-bonds, Jesus bonds, and go from there. Jesus speaks about the synagogue of Satan here. Um, this is a picture of, at the time, the false Jewish brethren. There was, a, you know, there were some synagogues that were uh, receptive to what was going on. They, they worked with the Christians. There were some that they were Messianic Jews in that congregation. Well, this particular synagogue in this particular area was trying to destroy these Christians. And it could have been the same one or the same area, the same type of people who started the ball rolling in Jerusalem, if you remember when we were in the book of Acts, that got Paul in trouble and started the whole ball rolling for him to be taken to Rome and eventually go before Nero. Verse 10. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus is saying to these Christians, this church, do not fear the coming suffering. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. I'm warning you ahead of time. Where does the prosperity gospel movement come in here? For those of you who don't know what that means, that's a gospel that's being preached today that actually started many years ago. It's not something new. It's just recycled. That basically says if you're a Christian and you have faith, that you'll never be poor, you'll never want for money, you'll never be sick, you'll always be healthy, and things will always go great in your life. That's a false gospel, okay? Because right here we can see that. The prosperity gospel is an insult to our brothers and sisters, the Hmong, the Sudanese, the Dalits, who today overseas are being persecuted for their faith in Christ. It's insulting. You will have tribulation for 10 days. Now, there's many theories on this. I'm going to go through the theories and then basically tell you what it means, what Jesus is trying to convey here. Uh, the 10 days could be, some have speculated, the last 10 years of the emperor Diocletian's rule. He's a pretty bad guy. There was a period of 10 Roman emperors that were problematic to the Christians or uh, 10 specific trials that were authored by Rome against the Christians. Some are good, some are interesting, but this is what Jesus is saying. In the grand scheme of things, you're going to suffer. Understand that. You're going to go through this. Okay? You're going to go through this tribulation period for 10 days. Whatever he was conveying to them, I'm sure they understood what he was saying. Trust me, though. Jesus was saying, trust me. I'm eternal. I've got it all under control. I hold the seven stars in my hands. I walk among the seven lampstands. So what he's saying is, you're going to go through this, but I'm going to go through it with you. And I've been through it. Hebrews 2.18 tells us that Jesus went through it himself. And I'm with you. And nothing can hurt you. Trust me on this one. So I've got it under control. And you will, you will receive the crown of life. Crown of life. It's, it's important that we understand these terms so we can understand the letters to the churches and how it affects us. The crown of life. The city of Smyrna was very involved in the athletic games, similar to, you know, Beijing Olympics, right? We have the Olympics, or is it every four years in a different city, um, in the country somewhere, some different country. Shows how much I know. Hope I got that right. Uh, athletic games and the winners, the, the winners in these games in those days would receive a coveted crown of wreaths. 
just like our Olympians get the, the gold, the silver, and the bronze, and it's very coveted. You, you strive to get these, these, um, these medals and this honor. Jesus was saying, my crown, my crown, forget about those wreaths that the people wore on their heads. I know you like that stuff, but my crown, Jesus says, is the crown of life. It's the crown of eternal life, and it's better than anything else that you can experience on the earth. It was something they could hold on to and have hope when they were going through these trials. Now, hope is a buzzword during our election cycle. Everybody's capitalizing on the hope word because it, it works because of the instability in our society now. So it's, good, it's a good way to get votes. But when the candidates break their promises in the second week of November, we know that Jesus' hope transcends all that buzzword hope when all the confetti is gone and the balloons and stuff and it's business as usual. Jesus says, it's my hope. I have the only hope that is available to mankind that has any substance to it. So he's offering them hope with the crown of life. Now, again, I've said this before. We need to put ourselves in the position of these churches. Oh, that's, that's interesting, Joe. I really enjoyed the sermon. You know, it's a beautiful day. I'm going to do all my stuff. These Christians were suffering. They had their children taken from them. They were beaten. They were separated from their families. They were made to, to live off the streets and scrap for food because of the oppression in their society. You really have to put yourself in the position. At any moment, you could lose your life or your spouse or your children. Now put yourself in that position and listen to Jesus' words. Believe me, they latched onto every word that he said for dear life. So that's really putting things in perspective. Jesus said um, a few things here. Some of the titles that he used for himself would be unique to each church. Okay? As we go through each church, Jesus is going to use different titles for himself. He says, I am the first and the last, meaning he's eternal. So whatever your current problems are, I have it all under control. Jesus also said to this church, I was dead and now am alive. Why did he say that to this church? Because a lot of them were going to die. It was hope to those who were enduring persecution. And Jesus was saying to them, listen, I died on the cross. I told you I was coming back. I did come back. Everything's fine. I ascended to be with the Father, seated at the right hand. And then when uh, the time is right, I'll come from my people. And he's saying to them too, listen, when you die and your heart stops beating and you breathe your last, you'll step from life. Next step will be into eternity like that. Don't worry about it. It's going to happen. Trust me. Verse 11. Jesus said, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. They were overcomers not to be hurt by the second death. There were some things that the Smyrnans had control of. They could control their, their fear. They could have hope in Jesus. They could fully trust him. But there were some things that they couldn't control, like their life, like none of us can control when we're going to live and when we're going to die. But he said, overcomers, you will not be hurt by the second death. In the Greek, there's a, a, a phrase that has to do with this. You will not be hurt. Now, there's a little bit, it has a little bit of more of a meaning. The, the phrase is ume, not to be confused with oive, but ume, all right? A double negative. Now, in English, a double negative is a positive. But in the Greek, a double negative was the strongest way you could express that negation. So Jesus was saying, if you hold fast, if you overcome, I will tell you with absolute certainty, no one's going to be lost here, none of you will be hurt by the second death. Now that was comforting. Why? 
The first death is the death of the body. Accepting the uh, rapture, all will face the death of the body. We're all going to die physically. It's just the way it is. The second death is an everlasting, tormentuous destruction of the soul in the lake of fire. Now, not everybody has to go through that. If we're in Christ, we, don't, we, we pass over that, right? Pass from death into life. So Jesus is saying, if you're overcomers, you will pass over that, and the second death will have no effect on you. It's not for you. What is an overcomer? Well, we've spoken about this. We know that in the Greek, the word is also uh, someone who's a victor, someone who's victorious. We, we overcome. We overcome our obstacles. As Christians... You know, when we're in Christ, we can do anything. Uh, Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What are the obstacles in our lives? Do we run away from our problems? As Christians, if we have Christ, we're not supposed to be quitters. We're supposed to have a a never-give-up spirit. We're not supposed to blow off our problems. We're not supposed to sin and hide and cover our sin and run from it. We're supposed to face it head-on. We're supposed to repent. We're supposed to be better. The Bible tells us as Christians, if we really are truly in Christ, not to give up until we have a last breath in our lungs. And that, I think, is very inspiring. And we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So what does a church of Smyrna look like? It's a church that's sold out for Christ no matter what the cost. Now, we see a reversal here, and I'm just going to kind of hit on this last point here. The Ephesians, let's go back to the first church. The Ephesians appear to have everything going right. But something was very wrong inside, in the heart. The Smyrnans had the appearance of everything going wrong, but God was pleased with them. You see a reversal here. Two points here. Number one, appearances aren't everything, and we should know that. The Bible says that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So appearances aren't everything. And number two, all that matters is that we please God and not man. Incidentally, I was looking out at the book table, and there's this really neat book called Uh, when people are big and God is small. How, as human beings, because God is intangible to us right now, we tend to please others, maybe our relatives, maybe our kids, maybe our spouse, maybe our friends, for the sake of, you know, not offending anybody. But God, God will forgive me for it. No, God needs to be big and people need to be small. There was a pastor, Romain, uh, who's gone to be with the Lord. He was an assistant pastor to Chuck Smith, and he would use the word man-pleasers. And he'd say, ah, you're a man-pleaser. Just somebody who is so concerned about what others think. And and young people get caught up in this peer pressure. They're so concerned about what others think. We need to be concerned about what God thinks and what's important to him. So the Ephesus church was a a, a church of, you know, people, they pleased men. Everyone would look at them and they'd be pleased by them. But the Smyrna church didn't please men, but they pleased God. And that's the church that we we should strive to be. So what type of church do we want to be? Well, Ephesian church, is that what we want? So everyone looking at us, hey, they're, they're flawless, no mistakes. Look at all the fanfare, ooh, ah, look at all the stuff they have going on. No, no, because their heart wasn't right. They left their first love. Or a church of Smyrna, which is not always going to have it all together. There's going to be mistakes. They're going to weather some heavy storms. But their devotion to Christ is immovable. And that's the choice that we make. Let's pray. Father in heaven.